Welcome to worship here. It is Sunday, March the 14th. I kind of forgot. I, my brain was saying it was the 28th, and I knew that wasn't right. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. A few announcements to check out in your bulletin and elsewhere. We are having Bible study downstairs Sunday mornings at 9.30. So if you would like to join us, Brother Mike is teaching that, and we would love to have you join. We are coming up to the end of the Lenten season. So as we come closer to Easter, first of all, there are the tulips. For Easter, you'll find that on the back of your announcements sheet for ordering those. They are $8.25 apiece, and the deadline for that is the 21st. On April the 1st, we'll be having an online love feast. Information for that will be coming out, but it'll be probably at 7 o'clock on April the 1st. I promise you it's not a Fool's Day joke. On the 2nd, which is Good Friday, we will be having the Sight and Sound production Jesus being live streamed here at the church downstairs. And that's being presented by the Fellowship and Recreation Committee at 7 o'clock, no charge. Just a reminder that we have Bible study on Tuesday night online at seven o'clock. All are welcome to join. We'll, we are continuing our study of the books of, or the parables in Luke, though I think we're coming to the end of that soon and we'll be jumping into something new shortly. Are there any other announcements you wish to share this morning? Are there any joys or concerns you wish to share with the community today to pray together? Continued prayers for Bernita's brother, Brian, who is doing well and recovering, and we pray that that continues. Prayers for Renee's brother-in-law, George, who is struggling through chemo treatments. It's a joy to see so many of you in here and to have a few of our brothers and sisters back who we haven't seen in a little while. If you will join us as we enter into this time of worship, listening to our opening music.
If you'll pray with me. Holy Creator, we thank you for this space and this time. We thank you for warm spring days, for crocuses pressing up through the earth. We thank you for new life, for new birth, for change. The promise of harvest, the promise of rains, the promise of new life. Holy Creator, as we prepare ourselves for the new life in you in Easter, we raise up our brothers and sisters in need of your care, in need of your healing, in need of your presence. We lift up Brian and thank you that he is healing and ask that he continues to do so, that he'll be able to see his great-granddaughter or granddaughter soon. We lift up George as he struggles with chemo and all that entails that his body will do well. We lift up our brothers and sisters who aren't with us this morning, those who we remember in prayer for Secret and Jeremy, for Elizabeth and Norma, Mark, Sandra, Dave, Milton, Josie, Pat, Janice, Peggy, Linda, the Zerker family, the Crenshaw family, the Shorbs, Jim, Brian, and our the family of the Kleins family. We thank you, Holy One, and pray that you will continue this walk with us as we enter into new life with you. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Air of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, 
delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy. Whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Brother Mike. Our reading today comes from the 14th chapter of Mark, 1 through 11. Now, the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priest and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it over his head. Some who were present were saying indignantly to one another, why? Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, 
what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest and betrayed Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Amen. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward path had been lost. Ah, me, how hard a thing it is to say, what was this forest savage, rough and stern, which in the very thought renews the fear? So bitter is it, death is little more, but of, that good to, but of the good to treat which there I found, speak will I of the things I saw there. I would very happily stand up here and read the entire first canto of the Divine Comedy, but I won't, because that's not why I'm up here. I really do enjoy Dante. I, I enjoy Edgar Allan Poe. I got a bit of this enjoying of these dark works. I remember the first time I forayed into the Divine Comedy, which is Dante Alighieri's seminal work. I was at my grandparents' house. They had this sitting area between the kitchen and the living room that had these big glass-covered bookshelves filled with mixtures of different Christian writers along with their favorite novels and magazines and the classics. I had dipped into other epic poems before, but I was only about 12, 13, and most of the ones I had read were ones that were designed for 10, 12, 13-year-olds. So they had been heavily edited down and made to make a lot more sense. But this copy of the Divine Comedy was one of those leather-bound tomes that's printed on the same thin paper that most of our Bibles are, are, and then bound with beautiful leather so that it would match all the other copies of the classic books that it was sitting next to. In short, I was sticking my toes into something much denser and more difficult than I had ever expected. I remember failing in my first reading of the Divine Comedy, I remember not really getting into it till years later when I found a copy at the library that had annotations all the way neck all the way along through it so that I understood what Dante was talking about. Now, if you've not encountered the book before, in a nutshell, it's Dante's fantastical travel through the inferno onto purgatory and then to paradise. Each one he's guided by somebody, first Virgil, who uh, is the ancient writer of the Aeneid, and then later Beatrice, who is kind of this perfect human that he had met at twice through his life. Slowly he travels down into hell, up the mountain of purgatory, and into heaven, until at last he comes to the very center of heaven where he comes into contact with Christ and God and he learns the perfect love. 
it's an interesting read. It's a snapshot of theology in the Middle Ages Europe, not to mention a lot about Italian politics and anyone who has ever given Dante a dirty look. Yeah, he didn't take kindly and he talked about a lot of people he didn't like. He told them exactly where he thought they were going and if they already died, he didn't mind telling their loved ones exactly where he thought they were. Dante adds a lot. If you read the Bible, you're really looking for passages that talk about what heaven or hell are like. It's a lot of broad strokes. Jesus doesn't talk about what they look like or what exactly it happens there. So Dante fills in the details. A lot of it he takes out of other cultures, but he made them famous, he made them popular to the point that when people imagine what they look like today, they probably have Dante's vision in mind. And he envisions a lot of order. Each step towards heaven or towards hell changes and gets either as he approaches God, greater bliss and greater joy as he approaches Satan, crueler punishments. And in the very center of hell, in the center of the inferno, is a frozen wasteland created by the ever-flapping wings of the greatest of all sinners, Satan. It is the section of hell designed for the worst sinners in Dante's mind, those who betray their lords and masters. Satan betrayed God. And Satan has three mouths chewing upon the second, third, and fourth worst sinners, Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Julius Caesar, and of course, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. I don't often give Judas much thought. I mean, he, in the Easter story, he's inevitable. Judas happens. The Easter story can't go forward without him. Salvation is obtained because he does something terrible. Christians have long struggled with this paradox. How can something so wonderful come from somebody doing something so terrible? Why did he do it? Did Jesus include him from the very beginning, knowing that he would be the one who betrayed him? Did Judas, was he the one who took the fall, knowing that he had to have somebody among the group that would be damned for the good of all? Some believe that he was possessed at that moment. That's kind of what Luke says. Others have even gone as far as reasoning that Judas was acting on Jesus's orders in order to set up the resurrection. Whatever the reason, as I said, Judas is inevitable. The story has to have him. It has to happen in order for it to go forward, and it happens once twice, three, four, five times in the Bible, each of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. The one who betrayed Jesus. The one who sent Jesus to the cross. A simple act with unknown reasons. It doesn't help that we know pretty much nothing about Judas. Matthew adds that he did feel guilty after doing so. 
Luke says he doesn't feel guilty after doing so. John tells us that he also happened to be the one in charge of the purse strings for the group and that he was stealing. <laughs> he was committing a little fraud. Mark doesn't tell us anything, basically. Mark only mentions Judas four times, once in the list of saying, here's all the disciples, and three times in this chapter. But I find it interesting, the story that leads into Judas making that decision. If we start back just a little bit, Jesus has traveled from his, where he lived in Capernaum around Galilee. He has traveled down to Jerusalem. He entered the Jerusalem on Palm, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, and people celebrated it and they waved. And, it was it. It was the coming of the new kingdom. And Jesus then goes back out, and then he comes back in, and he goes into the, the temple, and he throws out the money changers. Then he begins to teach there. He delivers a bunch of scathing parables, lessons, sermons against the temple leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. For some unfathomable reason, they didn't really like Jesus then. I can't imagine why. But they were shrewd enough to know that if they acted against Jesus at the wrong moment, it would backfire on them. Because after all, it was almost Passover. And that meant that the city was full of Jews coming back to celebrate at the temple. And it meant that the city was one giant tinderbox just waiting for a spark to light it on fire. There was always trouble in Jerusalem. That's why there was a good-sized Roman garrison there, especially on the holidays. Because something would happen, it would set somebody off, before they knew it, they had an uprising, and the Romans had to go in and put it down. And the Romans didn't really care who they killed or who they imprisoned. They just didn't. So it was just as dangerous for the leaders of the temple as it was for anybody else. Not to mention, if the Romans really wanted to, they could put them all out of business at the temple. So they had to be careful and wait for an opening in Jesus' armor so that they could go in and arrest him and avoid all the trouble. But they, they weren't the only ones who really were dissatisfied with Jesus at that point. There were at least 12 others who were finding it hard to believe with what was going on. Now, as I said, the disciples had only days before had walked in with Jesus as Jesus sat upon the donkey. And they believed this really was the refounding of the kingdom of David. The Romans and the temple, temple authorities were going to be overthrown in the throne of David raised again. It would be the glorious end of their three years of following Jesus around the countryside the beginning of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus had said, the kingdom of heaven is near, and they believed it was coming very soon. 
except it wasn't, at least the way they thought it was going to come. And instead of Jesus overthrowing, Jesus starts talking about the end of an age, of a war, of his own death. Instead of finding themselves sitting at the right and the left hands of their rabbi, ruling this new kingdom of God in the palace, they found themselves sitting in the home of a leper with the quiet realization that things weren't going on the way they had expected. And that's when this woman comes in, this unnamed woman, and pours a year's worth of a year's wages worth of expensive nard oil from the Himalayas over Jesus. You know, it doesn't translate super well when you take ancient money and try to apply it today, but we're talking about a laborer's wages. We're talking like $35,000 worth of oil. This is how kings are anointed. This is how priests are marked for their ministry, with oil running down from their hair through their beard onto their tunics. But Jesus wasn't king. There was still a Roman emperor. Yosef ben Caiaphas was still the high priest of the temple not to mention plotting against Jesus. Some of the disciples were upset. Perhaps they were angry about this turn of events, or maybe they're just now trying to plan for the long-term game, because obviously the kingdom's not coming tomorrow, so they're going to have to work to have it come later. But no. So they're watching all that money go into a seemingly pointless act, a pointless symbolic act. And it was so upsetting that they began to speak out against it. What are you doing? You should have given that money to us so we could, you know, help the poor or something. Leave her alone. She understands what is coming and is preparing me for the burial. It's now that Judas, we are told, makes the decision to go to the high priest to betray Christ. Perhaps he's been disillusioned with Jesus in the way. His expectations broken, and now he's looking for vengeance on the one who he blames for his broken heart. This isn't written in the Bible. This is just reading out what I think could possibly be a reason why. Because betrayal really hurts. The breaking of trust can end relationships that last for decades. Sometimes hurt feelings are warranted when there's that mutual understanding, and that understanding is violated. But sometimes trust is broken because it was put on something that was believed to have great worth, but was ultimately worthless. 
the disciples, many of them, right up through the crucifixion, believed in a kingdom on earth coming exactly as they expected, a new kingdom of David, a new Jerusalem, a new Israel. It was a beautiful idea, but it was a worthless idea because that's not what Jesus ever told them. They had built it up in their own minds. They had put their trust in this worthless idea that Jesus kept telling them, that's not the way it's going to work. And then this woman comes in and pours this item of great value in an act that seems worthless. But as we read on in the story, we understand it's not worthless, it's priceless. I like Dante. And one of my favorite quotes is that first line. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark for the straightforward pathway had been lost. I can't speak exactly for what, Dante, for what Judas was feeling, but when I'm thinking about what I've read, when I'm thinking about Dante a little bit, I can't help but wonder as he's reached that midway point in his life where he thought he was following the straightforward path and instead found himself in the forest dark. The pathway lost. Everything he had believed in broken. We all risk that. It's easy for us to build up in our minds the expectation of what this means, what Jesus means, what the way means, what the kingdom of heaven is. And then we encounter life. Then we encounter Christ. And Christ reminds us that it's more complicated than you think. It's also much more beautiful than you think. Don't lose the straightforward path. Just keep going, following directly towards the way, directly towards Christ. Don't put worth in things that are worthless. Put your faith in things that are priceless, in the kingdom, in the way. Trust won't be broken then. Thank you.
I felt like that was a little dark. Of course, I was quoting dark poetry, so. <laughs> it's not that hard. It's not that hard to follow Christ. It's incredibly difficult, but it's also not that hard to just put your faith in the one who won't break your trust. To be okay with the way that God's plan leads us through this world. So as you go out, set your foot firmly behind the pathway that Jesus has left us and follow it. It won't lead you astray. And if you find yourself a little broken, it doesn't mean that God has left you. It just means God's still with you. You just got to turn towards him, pray a little harder, and of course, reach out to our brothers and our sisters because we don't walk the path alone. We walk it together. Amen.